Uh, we preach right through books of the Bible, and last week we very cleverly got Palm Sunday to fall on Palm Sunday, which means the very next text, which is the cleansing of the temple, falls on Easter. So, how do we get from there to Easter? We are about to find out. So, let's turn to that, because this is actually a very important text. It makes some very significant theological statements, important for us to understand. So, Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. You can get out your Bibles, your various electronic devices. You can read along in the bulletin. Uh, Whatever it is that you do, let's get God's Word uh, in front of you. Matthew 21, verses 12 through 17. Please listen carefully, as this is God's Word. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, as always. Thank you this day for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. And we ask you this Easter morning to give us the grace to understand who Jesus is and what Jesus has done on this resurrection day. So by your spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to see Jesus. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, once upon a time, always a good way to start a story, there was a king, and he wanted to give his country sort of a new lease on life. So he decided to capture a city that none of his people had lived in before, and he would make that city his capital. And uh, by doing that, no one amongst all of his people would feel then uh, overly proud that their city was chosen or overly humiliated that their city wasn't chosen. So he's going to get this new city and make it his capital. The problem he had is this city was perched high on a rocky hill and was easy to defend against attack. And the inhabitants of this city saw this young upstart king coming with his army and they knew. They were absolutely certain that they would have no trouble at all warding him off. They were so sure they sent him a message. They said, we've let all of our regular guards have the day off. They're off duty. In fact, we've put blind people on watch. And as runners for the message is going to send, we've picked out some lame people 
to take your messages. They were absolutely certain that this would not be a problem. But the king knew, however strong the city was, it needed one thing, water. And he discovered where the spring of water flowed into the city, and he knew that was the way in. So he challenged his men, get up that water shaft and fight your way into the city, and the first one in will be a general. And so they went up the water shaft, and they took the city. And it became the capital for the king. Now, the king didn't forget how the enemy had mocked him and what they said about blind and lame people keeping him out. So he made a new rule. No blind or lame people are welcome here. He wanted no reminders of how the enemy had mocked him. Now, you may have heard this story before. Because the king was, of course, King David. And the city was, of course, Jerusalem. And the house where the, blonde, the blind and the lame were not welcome is, of course, the temple. And you can find the story in 2 Samuel chapter 5 and in 1 Chronicles chapter 11. And now we're ready to see what Matthew is doing in telling the story of how King Jesus came to Jerusalem and came to the temple a thousand years later. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and being hailed as the king on Palm Sunday. One week before Easter, in every one of those Gospels, we see, though they all write it up a little bit differently, he goes straight to the temple. Because on Palm Sunday, he's not just coming into Jerusalem as king. He's coming to the temple as king. And what he does in the temple seems odd. Here you have gentle Jesus, meek and mild, carrying a whip. If you read all the Gospels, every one of them talks about the cleansing of the temple. And if you put all the counts uh, together, you get quite a few details. He makes a whip out of cords. This is not an Indiana Jones kind of a whip. This is a small uh, whip. It's actually made out of uh, what we would call reeds today. And uh, so, you know, it's, it looks more like a feather duster than a whip. But if you know my grandma, then you would know that feather dusters can be used effectively. <laughs> so he made a whip out of cords, and he threw over the money changers' tables, and he threw over the animal sellers' tables, and he yelled, and here he is, Jesus. We know Jesus. He told us, Matthew 11, come to me all who, are late, who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon uh, you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. And yet now we see him uh, right here, Jesus, terrible in his wrath, thunder in his voice, fire in his eyes. It's the only recorded act of violence by Jesus. Why? Well, actually, I already told you why but we'll spend the rest of the time unpacking it. See, he came to Jerusalem not just declaring himself as king, he came to the temple declaring himself as king. This is a radical act. And the question that comes up right away is, what did it mean? To answer that, we have to ask ourselves, why? Why does Jesus go straight to the temple and cleanse it? Because you have to understand, as king, he owns it. And as king, he has total 
authority over it. So let's jump into this lovely Easter text and see what's going on. Starting with the king's authority over the temple's use. The king's authority over the temple's use, starting at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. In the cleansing of the temple, we learn something of the authority that Jesus brings. Verse 12 says that Jesus entered the temple. Now, when you walked into the temple, when you first walked in, the first area that you would go to is the court of the Gentiles. Now, the word for Gentiles is ethne. It literally means the nations, the peoples. It's the only place where non-Jews can go. It's the biggest of all the divisions of the temple, and you had to go through it to get to any of the rest of it. It's a place where all the business operations of the temple were set up, and what operations they were. When Jesus walked in, he would have immediately seen, and I'm not exaggerating, thousands of people buying and selling animals at hundreds of locations and hundreds of foreign currency money changers. The historian Josephus tells us that in one Passover week, 25,000 lambs were bought, sold, and sacrificed in the temple courts. If you've ever seen our financial trading floors, you know how tumultuous and loud uh, they can be. They're nothing compared to this. This is where the Gentiles are supposed to find God. This is where the Gentiles are supposed to be praying, but they can't because it's a zoo, literally. So he cleanses the temple. Now, at festival days, the Jews throng Jerusalem. Some estimate that the permanent resident population of Jerusalem was probably only about 80,000 people. But during the major feast days, Jews came from all over the world, and the population uh, would swell to over a quarter of a million people. And because they're coming from everywhere, and they had to come to the temple and offer up sacrifices, uh, and they had to come with those sacrifices, uh, oxen and goats and sheep and doves, and they couldn't bring them from a foreign land, so what happened was they bought them on the spot. And because they came from foreign lands, they couldn't use their money. They had to have their currency changed into shekels. So this is actually an okay thing to do, to buy sacrificial animals and to pay for them and have your money changed. But what happened is the whole process was no longer happening out on the street in front of the temple. But it's happening right in the middle of the temple, right in the temple courts, right in the places where people are are actually doing the sacrifices where they're trying to worship God, where they're trying to pray. And the effect was, as Jesus says, you've turned worship into a marketplace. Literally, he says, you make it a den of robbers. In the Gospel of John, he says in John 2.16, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. And the effect of bringing the marketplace into the temple is that everything has become completely mechanical. 
People are all around you with their money and with all the calling and shouting out and the hustle and bustle that would happen in the marketplace. And in the middle of all this, you offered up your sacrifice, you paid the priest, you looked up, you recited a prayer, and you went out. It had become completely mechanical, almost like an assembly line of worship. You sacrificed your animal, you said your prayer, you paid the priest, you did the right things, you moved on next. And that's what was going on. It was very mechanical, and Jesus is saying, I have to purify the temple of anything that distracts from the focus on God. We say that, said that this morning. In fact, many Sundays when we start out, part of the opening prayer is to ask God to set aside the distractions of our week, the distractions of our life, and help us to focus on worshiping him. But this, this is like having worship at the outlet mall. You can't help but be distracted. There's simply too much going on. Now, the things that Jesus threw out are actually good things. There's nothing necessarily sinful about what's going on, but they're good things that have come into a place that only God had a right to be. Good things have gotten in the way of the best thing, and that's why they had to be thrown out. Things are fine in their place and become bad when they were brought into his place. So Jesus cleanses the temple of anything that distracts from the focus on God. You think about this. Jesus says, my house should be a house of prayer. You've turned it into a market. When you lay down an animal for sacrifice, you should be thinking about what this sacrifice means. When you lay down an animal and it's slain, you should be saying, this should be me. Why isn't it me? You should be saying, if justice was done, I should be slain. I'm the one who doesn't love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. I don't love my neighbor as myself. Why isn't this me? This animal is slain, and now I'm spared. See, the sacrificial system, though very mysterious, was a lot like the gospel, because the sacrificial system, on the one hand, is very humbling. It says to you, you know what? You can't go into God. There has to be a sacrifice. The penalty has to be paid. There has to be a judgment. On the other hand, it's very joyous, because you get there and you realize you're not the sacrifice. There's a way that you can be provided for. There's a way for you to be spared. So it's very mysterious and it's very humbling and joyous all at the same time. But are they doing that? No. Jesus says, they don't see what it means. They should be ready for me. They could be ready for me, but they're not. They don't understand the sacrifice. They don't get the meaning of it. They don't feel a need for a savior. They don't have any idea because they're not praying. It's just a market. It's all become so mechanical. They're not engaged, they're not reflecting, they're not even thinking. Get these things out of here. And the real problem is they'd squeezed out communion with God. They'd squeezed out reflection on the meaning of this substitutionary sacrifice. Jesus sees all the animals to be sacrificed. And it must be in turmoil. Because Jesus had one thing and one thing only on his mind. He was here to die for us. His sacrificial atonement is always before him. So we see not only does Jesus have authority over the temple's use, it's clear from our text he has authority over the temple's people. That should be the second blank there in your outline. 
authority over the temple's people. Let's go back to verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? So here's Jesus. He starts tossing the furniture and throwing the tables over and probably throwing a few people over. And they come to him and say, what's going on? Why are you doing this? He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer. In the Gospel of Mark, we read in Mark 11, he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Mark tells us this astonished the listeners. It shocked them. It says all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. Why is it so shocking? Well, on one hand, of course, it's popularly believed that when the Messiah shows up, he's going to purge the temple of foreigners. And here's Jesus being an advocate for them. Of course, you know, in a multicultural place like Northern Virginia, we like that. That's cool. I like that about Jesus. But what he's doing is way more radical than that because he's throwing out the animal sacrifices. He's throwing out the sacrificial system and he's saying the Gentiles can go directly to God. Pagan, unwashed Gentiles, they can go directly to God in prayer. What's Jesus doing? What's he talking about? Well, mostly he's quoting prophecy. He quotes from Isaiah 56, which is about the coming kingdom of God, and Jesus is putting himself in the position of the coming king. And in Isaiah, we read the full quote, the full context, which says, Isaiah 56, and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it, profane it and holds fast my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain, that's where the temple is, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And so the gathering has started. And in this gathering, we have three striking contrasts. And each contrast is about the people in the temple. I've already mentioned the first contrast, that of the Jews and the Gentiles. When Jesus comes, the Gentiles come in right behind him. But the second contrast is seen in verses 12 through 14. We have the money changers and the sellers contrasted with the blind and the lame. See, the money changers and the sellers shouldn't have been there in the first place, and Jesus threw them out. The blind and the lame, even though they were probably Jewish, were banned from coming in. So you have one group that shouldn't be there that is, and another group that's not there that should be. And the, these blind and lame, the Jewish people, 
They can't come into the temple, even to the court of the Gentiles, the most outer court of the temple. And even if they got that far, they couldn't go any further because they're ceremonially unclean. They're deformed. They're disabled. They're not fit for the inner court. So what does Jesus do? He heals them. All of them. That's a foretaste of heaven. Doesn't matter what's wrong with you. It doesn't matter if you have a deformity, a disability, if there's something wrong with your body, if there's something wrong with your mind, you get to be with Jesus. He heals you. And once again, he's fulfilling prophecy, Isaiah 35. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And once they're healed, what can they do? They can enter into the court of the Jews. Now in my mind, trying to imagine this scene, I imagine Jesus healing them just like he did the blind men on the road to Jerusalem and then holding open the door so they could enter in. I imagine Jesus standing there calling to some of them, hey you, you can see now, you can hear now, you can walk now, you can speak now, come on in, I'll hold the door. That's a great scene. They're not allowed in, Jesus heals them. And now they're allowed in. And then there's the third contrast. This may be the best one of all. It's seen starting in verse 15. The chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they get indignant. The chief priests and the scribes are complaining about the children because the children are praising God because Jesus healed the blind and the lame people which is what the chief priests and the scribes should have been doing. Jesus healed all these people, opened up the way into the temple for them. If there's anyone who should have rejoiced about more people being able to come into the temple, it should have been the chief priests. But they didn't. So the children did. And when they complained, Jesus replied to them, Yes, have you never read? Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. Jesus is quoting the scripture to the experts in the scriptures. It's from Psalm 8, where it says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of the mouth of babies and infants. You have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Quoting Psalm 8 accomplishes two more things. The first one, which the chief priest probably would have understood, was acclaimed to deity by Jesus because Psalm 8, the praise, is given directly to God. And the second one, which the chief priest probably wouldn't have understood, is a reminder that we have to become like little children who perceive the truth about Jesus and are saved. So we see that as king, Jesus has authority over the temple's use, and that as uh, king, Jesus has authority over the temple's people. And as king, Jesus has authority over the temple's meaning. Authority over the temple's meaning. We're going to jump over to John chapter 2. 
Look at the parallel passage there. There it says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem in the temple. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there and making a whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Now we see that Jesus declares that he is the final temple. When he shows up and begins to tell people, he begins to say how things are going to go in here, what he's really saying is, I've come to make a great change. The temple is a good thing, the temple is a wonderful thing, but it's a provisional thing. I have come to replace it. The Gospel of Luke, after he cleansed the temple, the chief priests and the scribes come to him, Luke 20, and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Who is it that gave you this authority? How does Jesus answer that? Back to John 2. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Go ahead, tear it down. In three days I will raise it up again. Then I'll show you what authority I have. They didn't get it, but we should. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his body. What he's saying is, I am the real temple, of which this temple is just a foreshadowing. Why? What does the temple do? It's a place where you can meet God face to face. It's a place of sacrifice. And what Jesus is saying is, I am God in the flesh. I am God who's come to you in person. I am the way to meet God. I am the place of sacrifice. What Jesus is saying at this point is absolutely astonishing. He throws the sellers out. He says, I'm going to make this system of animal sacrifice obsolete because I am the sacrifice. His death and resurrection are supremely about him being the temple. Later on, he makes this incredible statement which gets him killed because at his trial, this is the charge that sticks. Matthew 26, verse uh, 61 this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. That's a radical statement. Here's why. At that time, every country, every culture, every people, every tribe in the world had temples. And every temple has two premises, two presuppositions. First of all, a temple means that there's a God. There's a divine being. There's something out there behind creation that we need to be in touch with. There's an ultimate. There's a transcendent. And the second thing the temple means is you can't just talk to it. You can't just say, hey, ultimate. You don't get to connect. There's a gap between us and the divine that needs to be mediated. There's a gap, a chasm that needs to be bridged. And every temple is different, of course, because every religion is different. You have different systems, but most of them have priests and, and sacrifices and offerings. 
And the temple meant we know there's something out there and there's something keeping us away and there's something or someone to bridge the gap. And when Jesus says, tear down this temple, you don't need it anymore because after three days I'll give you a new temple and that temple is my resurrected body. What does he mean? He means he's replacing the temple. So the first thing he wants us to know is this king, Jesus, is the God you seek. He's telling them, I'm the God you're trying to reach. What was in the temple, the presence of God. Read the Old Testament. Whenever the temple was built, down comes the Shekinah glory of God. And the glory of God comes down into the temple. The presence of God is there, and nobody can stand before it. They have to get out. When the presence of God comes down on Mount Sinai, it's like a hurricane, a tornado, and an earthquake all rolled up in one, and everybody just hightails it out of there. When Moses says, can I see you, your royal Shekinah glory presence, God says, no, it'll kill you. It means first, when Jesus says, I am the temple, my body is the temple. What he's saying is the Godhead fills me the way the Shekinah glory fills the temple. I am the God you're seeking. That's not all, because he doesn't just say, I am God, and he doesn't just say, I am the temple. It means he's also saying, this king, Jesus, is the bridge you need. He's the bridge you need. He's letting us know, I'm the bridge across the gap. What's he talking about? What gets destroyed and raised up in three days? His physical body died on the cross, put in the tomb, and rising again from the dead. He's saying, my temple is different than every other temple. In every other temple, you bring the sacrifice. In every other temple, you bridge the gap. Every other religion says, you provide the bridge, you provide the priest, you provide the sacrifice, you provide the striving, you provide the mediatorial system. In every other temple, you have human priests and you have animal sacrifices, and in some, you even have human sacrifices. In every other temple, you pay a price, you do things, you do incantations, you do all kinds of things, anything and everything to bridge the gap. But you can't. And now Jesus says, I have good news. The gospel is that the real God provides the sacrifice. Tear down my body and you'll see my death is the ultimate, final, once-for-all-time sacrifice. In my temple, I am the sacrifice. I pay the penalty. I am the priest. I am the altar. I am the lamb uh, who was slain. I am the one who bridges the gap. I'm not only the God on the other side of the gap, I'm the bridge to the other side of the gap. I have come, and when I died on the cross and rose again to new life, I bridged that gap. And I put a bridge across that infinite chasm forever. And when my body is raised up, you'll see I am the ultimate priest that opens the door into the presence of God. I am the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. I am the priest to end all priests. I am the mediatorial system to end all mediatorial systems. I am the temple to end all temples. Through me, you can come right into the presence of an infinite holy God. The resurrection means this intimacy with God, what you've been looking for, been looking for that intimacy which was previously lost, 
an intimacy from which we feel estranged, an intimacy from which we feel cut off, an intimacy which means there's a gap separating us that we can't cross. And Jesus' resurrection tells us he's not only the sacrifice, he's not only the temple, he's the bridge that enables us to be in the presence of God Almighty to have a restored intimacy with God. That's the claim of Jesus Christ. Do you see? Nobody else has ever said this. The founders of other religions built temples. Jesus says, I am the temple. I make all other temples obsolete because my temple is not only a place, but a person. But unlike every other temple, I'm not only the God who resides there, I'm the one who bridges the gap and opens the door. Now there's probably somebody out there saying, wait a minute, I'm not a primitive person. Primitive people believed in temples and incense and hocus pocus, but you know, it's the 21st century. I'm a 21st century person. You can just talk to God. You can just go right to God. You realize that's not a modern idea. That's a Christian idea that never would have occurred to the world. It came into the world, that idea of being able to talk directly to God because of Christianity. Christianity was so radical. It had no sacrifices. It had no temples. It had no priests. What kind of religion is this? It's the most real religion possible. And if you're saying, I just like to talk to God, I don't believe in the need for a temple, you may be wondering, why is your talking with God not changing you? Why hasn't it revolutionized your life? Why hasn't it turned you inside out? Why hasn't it filled you with this incredible love that you can't stop thinking about? about. And you know why it hasn't? Because from Christianity, you've grasped the idea of not needing a temple. But you haven't accepted the gospel story of the temple replacement. And as a result, you're not moved and amazed by who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. The resurrection means there's a new temple. And the name of that temple is Jesus, and you can go right in. Because Jesus Christ lived the life you should have lived, died the death you should have died. He's the sacrifice. He's the high priest. He's the temple. And now Jesus says, because what I have done for you, because of who I am for you, because I rose again from the dead, you can go right in. That's a Christian idea. And it was proven on Easter and how did the Apostle John finish his account of the cleansing of the temple? comes in John 2, verse 22. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. They believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. May that be true for you. Think about that. Christ is risen. risen You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close.
Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king, and in this passage we see your son. Open our eyes that we might see him as our Lord, as our Savior, as our high priest, as our perfect sacrifice, as our mediator, as our bridge, as our temple, and most of all, as our king. And this day, more than any other day, help us to know and believe that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Receive God's blessing from the Gospel of Luke, where it says, He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. God bless you.